Tonight we continue to exalt the Word of God in the 119th Psalm as we study through this beautiful and very powerful psalm which truly does exalt the Word of God in every line. An acrostic psalm, as we have mentioned several times, 22 uh, paragraphs of eight verses each comprising this psalm of a total then of 176 verses, 22 uh, paragraphs, all representing, each one representing a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And in each of the paragraphs, every verse begins with that particular letter that is represented. So it is a, a psalm that would have been perhaps easier to memorize because of that. We don't know if that had anything to do with the Holy Spirit inspiring the penman to write it in this fashion. And uh, we do not know for sure who the penman was, though many have ascribed the psalm to, to David. As we begin tonight with the paragraph that represents the Hebrew letter corresponding to our letter P uh, in the English alphabet, we begin with verse 129. And this particular section of the psalm begins with uh, a praise uh, very high praise and appreciation, again, for the wonderful testimonies uh, of the Lord. But the paragraph will end with a sad lament, a sad lament over those who do not consider the testimonies of the Lord wonderful at all, but who do not respect and who do not keep the law of Almighty God. And so we begin in a very positive way. Uh, the paragraph does from the psalmist and ends with tears, tears over those who do not keep the law of God. But the first verse of this paragraph reads, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. I read a paraphrase of this verse that went this way, your testimonies are wonderful, no wonder I keep them. <laughs> No wonder I keep them. Your testimonies are wonderful, and I recognize them, the psalmist says, to be wonderful. And I recognize them to be beneficial. I recognize them to be everything that they claim to be, to do all that they claim to do, to produce all that they claim to produce, to furnish me completely, and therefore I keep them. I want to emphasize the latter part of this verse. Therefore, my soul, what? Keeps them. The psalmist was a keeper of the word of God. Had he lived in the time of uh, James, the inspired writer, and had he read that epistle from James, the brother of the Lord, he would have no doubt given a hearty amen to what James wrote about the importance of being not just a hearer, but a keeper, that is, a doer of the will of God. Remember James 1, 22 through 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he adds, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. How beautifully harmonious those thoughts are from James by inspiration with the thoughts of the psalmist here by inspiration. And though the psalmist did not have in his possession even what James had and obviously what we now have with the full revelation and the completion of God's word, and we have it in its complete and final form, everything that the psalmist had experienced, everything that he had available to him from God through his word was something that he understood to be precious and that he understood had to be kept. And he understood the value of it. And the next verse clearly demonstrates that. As he writes, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Now notice the grammatical construction of that sentence. It is not the word words that is the subject of the verb there. The entrance, it gives understanding. It's the entrance that gives the understanding. The entrance of the words, God's words, yes. But the point is, it has to enter in order to give understanding. In other words, we have to open our hearts to that word. We have to allow that word to enter. It is not the existence of the word that gives understanding. It is the entrance of the word that gives understanding. And that speaks to the absolute cruciality of attitude when we approach this book. And the attitude must be one that says, in effect, as the prophet of old said, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. You remember in the Revelation letter to the churches of Asia and to the church at Laodicea. To the church at Laodicea, the Lord said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The church at Laodicea had ousted the Lord. They had closed him out. Their lukewarmness was repugnant to the Son of God. And he said of them, I would that you were cold or hot rather than lukewarm, and because you're neither cold nor hot, I will, as the New King James says, vomit you out of my mouth. Is he any less pleased with lukewarmness and the attitude of lukewarmness toward his word today? Of course not. And so the Lord stands at the door and knocks, and he still stands at the door of every heart today and knocks through this word. But the attitude of the heart, the biblical heart, is absolutely crucial as to whether or not we allow it to enter and to produce the result that it can and will produce if it enters a good and honest heart. And that is, it will give understanding to the simple, the latter part of verse 130. Understanding to the simple Sometimes that word simple could be misconstrued in terms of modern-day 
uses and people talk about simple-mindedness or someone incapable of learning. That's not the meaning of the word here at all. It is simply the immature or the one who is unlearned, the one who has not been taught, but who is willing to be taught if he will allow the Word of God to enter his heart. There's another psalm, not 119, but 100 earlier, in Psalm 19, with a similar thought in 19 in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's the same Hebrew word there as in Psalm 119, 130. And again, it simply indicates that wisdom, the greatest wisdom, the most important wisdom of all, can be gained by the unlearned, by the immature who is willing to learn if he will allow the Word of God to enter his heart. That is the biblical heart, the mind. And so it's not words that is the subject of the verb here. It is entrance. The entrance is the key. If you allow it to enter, it will give light. It will give understanding to the people. And really, that's a Hebrew parallelism, really, because light and, and understanding are synonymous virtually here, the way they are used. Light represents that understanding. As we talk about, oh, the light just came on for me, that expression. In other words, I have gained understanding. Now listen to this next verse. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. What a statement. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Again, there, there's another psalm, the beginning of which is probably quite familiar. It's been put into a song, as a matter of fact, to him, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Can that be said of each one of us tonight? Can we honestly say that we are in harmony and sentiment with the psalmist here concerning our attitude toward the Word of God? Do we long for His commandments? Do we love the commandments? Do we long for them? Do we learn them? Do we live by them? The psalmist did. What an attitude is expressed in terms of the desire that he had for the Word of God. And then he issues a plea to the God of heaven Look upon me and be merciful to me as your custom is toward those who love your name. Oh, how we need mercy. We've talked about this already in the study of this same psalm. And what an emphasis there is not only in this psalm, but throughout the psalms, really, and throughout the Bible, upon the mercy of God 
the appreciation for that mercy by right-thinking people, the plea for that mercy by those who understood fully that without the mercy of God, without the grace of God, there was no hope for their salvation. They did not rely totally upon His mercy. They understood the combination of mercy or grace and the keeping of His commandments. But without mercy, you can't keep enough commandments in order to earn your salvation. But that's not to say that you should not be obedient in order to receive the mercy of God. There's another psalm, the 136th psalm. It begins, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The next verse is, O give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. There are 26 verses in the 136th psalm. Every single verse ends with, for his mercy endures forever. 26 times, for his mercy endures forever. For his mercy endures forever. Do you think the inspired writer there appreciated the mercy of God and his need for that mercy? Of course he did. And of course, so should we. Because we are saved by that mercy, by that grace, but not totally by that mercy. We've already looked at a passage I want to look at again to remind us that there is a combination involved in salvation, if you will. Combination of God's part and man's part, and it is not all God's grace and mercy, but without that grace and mercy, there's no possibility of our salvation. Remember Titus 3 and verse 5? We have looked at it already in this series. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. That is, we haven't earned our salvation by righteousness that we have performed, and thereby we can say to God, you must save me now. I don't need your mercy. I've earned your salvation. We can't do that. That's an impossibility. That's what Paul is saying here. It is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but listen to it. But according to his mercy, he saved us. But listen to this. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Paul understood the absolute essentiality of the mercy of God, but he also understood the essentiality, the absolute necessity of the washing of regeneration. And what is the washing of regeneration? No Bible student worth his salt could deny that the washing of regeneration is baptism. And no Bible student worth his salt can deny that that baptism is a burial in water. No Bible student worth his salt could deny that it is in that burial that the blood of Christ is applied to cleanse us from sin. And it is by a submission to that burial preceded by faith that leads us to repent of our sins and confess Jesus to be the Christ that we accept the mercy of God. That's how we appropriate that grace. That's how we accept that mercy because it's God's mercy that gave us that plan that tells us to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. The mercy of God revealed that plan to us. Therefore, by His mercy we've been saved, but through our faith response, an obedient response, as Titus 3.5 points out. And we have pointed out many times that that process that I have just briefly described, salvation by grace through obedient faith, did not begin with the New Testament. It has always been God's plan for saving man. Different steps or conditions of 
salvation, obviously, under the former dispensations, but Noah had to build the ark. And when he did, as we have said, he was saved by grace, but through his obedient faith. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. There it is. Grace through obedient faith, walking with God. Here it is in Titus 3, 5. According to his mercy, he has saved us with the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's our faith response by obedience in being buried in baptism. Look upon me, the psalmist cries, and be merciful to me as your custom is toward those who what? Who love your name. You know what's equivalent to loving his name? Everything I've just said about obeying him. That's equivalent to loving his name. You cannot claim to love his name and walk contrary to his will. Because to love his name is to love everything that that name connotes. It is to love the authority of that name. It is to love everything involved in that name, including the authority. Remember Colossians 3.17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, do it by his authority. Those who love his name, those who walk according to his authority, or those who can expect to receive the mercy of God. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Look to me, be merciful to me, as you are toward all those who seek to walk in compliance with your will. That's a principle again that has never changed, is it? Has it? Never has, never will. First Peter 1, 13 comes to mind. It is in complete harmony with what we're reading here in the plea from the psalmist to the God of heaven. Listen to it. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But listen to the next verse. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What's the difference in what Peter says here writing to Christians and what the psalmist is declaring here? Nothing at all in principle. The psalmist is saying, I want your mercy, Father, and I am calling upon you to, exto- to extend that mercy to me as you do customarily toward those who what? Who are your obedient children. First Peter 1, 13 through 15. Same principle. Different specifics in terms of how those under former dispensations had to have manifest their obedience versus how we manifest ours, but that principle is the same. And oh, I love this next verse. Direct my steps by your word. Could you find a statement that would tie being in the right direction as far as your life any better with the word than this one does? Could you find a verse that would deny the need for any direct miraculous operation of the Holy Spirit any more than does this verse? Direct my steps by your 
word. Oh, don't you wish that all the world would express that desire, that plea to God, and then turn to that word to let this word direct. But man, for the most part, doesn't think he needs that direction from the word of God. And he spurns that direction. Despite what Jeremiah after this time, wrote in Jeremiah 10, 23, when he said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. The psalmist knew that. Jeremiah knew that. But tragically, tragically for the most part, the world tonight does not know that. Direct my steps by your word. And then he adds, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Isn't that a confession that there is a potentiality for sin or iniquity to gain dominion over us? Well, of course. Is it not possible for, for sin to gain control of our lives? Generally not doing it in swift overnight fashion, but slowly and surely, and ultimately and finally, overcoming individuals. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has a great deal to say along this subject. In Romans six thirteen, he admonishes Christians, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Down at the next verse, For sin shall not have dominion, verse 14, over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Two verses later at verse 16 of Romans 8, or Romans 6 rather, he says, But God be thanked, or rather, do you not know, verse 16, that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether to, of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness? Oh yes, sin can have dominion. Paul makes that affirmation very clearly. Sin can gain control of our lives. The psalmist pleads here, do not let that happen to me. How can we keep it from happening? The psalmist knew it. And he expressed it by allowing the Word of God to direct our steps, by determining that we will direct our steps and order our steps by God's Word. Who can do that? The one, the one who has left the dominion of Satan and sin and has come into the kingdom of God, the church, through obedience to the gospel. Because you see in verses 17 and 18 of Romans 6, if we go back there, he says, But God be thanked. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Is it interesting that he says you obeyed a form of doctrine? It should get our attention. And that form of doctrine he has 
already described in the earlier part of that sixth chapter of Romans. You want to hear what it is? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That is the very form of doctrine to which Paul later in that chapter refers in Romans six seventeen and 18. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. What form? The form that represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. What is that form of doctrine that represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Burial and baptism for the remission of sins, having died to the desire to sin in repentance, and having determined that we're going to be free from sin, cleansed from that sin by the blood of Christ. And that blood is applied when we submit to that form of doctrine from hearts filled with gratitude for the opportunity to be free from the dominion of sin. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. Who can achieve that? The Christian. How? By allowing the Word of God to direct his steps. The writer of the Psalms here, this particular psalm, based upon repeated statements, seems to have known a great, great deal about being oppressed by his fellow man. And the next verse is a further indication of that. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. You know, if David penned this psalm, there's no question about the fact that David knew what it was to be oppressed, didn't he? By his fellow man, by some of the ones very closest to him, by his own son, Absalom, by King Saul, the first king of the United Kingdom, by Ahithophel, his close confidant who betrayed him, and others who could be named that were responsible for oppression against David. What's he asking for here? Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Is he saying, if you don't redeem me from this oppression, then I'm going to stop keeping your precepts? No. But I think what he is saying is that it would certainly make it more conducive. It would make things more conducive for the keeping of your precepts if I could be relieved from this oppression. But it's obvious that his determination, whether oppressed or relieved from that oppression, his determination was to keep the precepts of God. And we come back to light again in the next verse. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. You remember the blessing, the priestly blessing that was bestowed upon Israel on a regular basis? Numbers chapter 6 reveals it. Verse 23 of number 6 The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 22, saying in verse 23, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is a beautiful blessing, isn't it? It came from God by his instruction to his people of old. 
And it comes to mind when we see this statement here. Make your face shine upon your servant. And then he says what? And teach me your statutes. Gets us back to a quality we've already mentioned about the psalmist in this particular psalm. And that is he was teachable. He had the humility that allowed him to be taught. And he was eager to be taught. But now we come to the final verse in the paragraph. The verse we said is a contrast to the first verse of the paragraph. Where here he laments the fact that so many others do not feel as he does about God's word. And about God. And so he writes, rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. And that should strongly suggest to us that our love for the Lord and for his word and for the church that we're privileged to be a part of if we're Christians tonight should cause us deep sorrow when we consider the vast majority of those living who have lived and realistically who will live who will not keep the law of God who will never know what it is like to be a part of the kingdom of Christ the church of our Lord and Savior oh yes we need to make every effort to reach every precious soul with the gospel and to give every soul the opportunity to hear it but as we do we go Realistically, understanding that Jesus said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it because tragically there are few who have any interest in looking for it. And even when it's presented to them when they haven't been looking for it, they do not have the spiritual interest to understand and appreciate what has been presented to them. Should that discourage us to the point that we stop taking the word to the world? Well, of course not. That's our charge. That's our commission. That's our privilege as God's people. But it also ought to cause us sorrow over the rejection that is so widespread concerning the truth of God's word today. Perhaps more so than at any other time in our lives. Jeremiah is not called the weeping prophet for nothing, is he? He wept, and there are many passages that, that depict how Jeremiah wept. Look at just one of them with me. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. What a statement of deep sorrow from the weeping prophet. What a statement of deep sorrow from the psalmist here in Psalm 119, 136. But what a statement of deep sorrow from the Savior of the world, who was rejected for the most part by his own countrymen, And in Luke chapter 19, we read of an occasion of weeping by our Lord as he drew near to the city of Jerusalem 
and wept over it, verse 41 says, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, Because you did not know the time of your visitation, you did not realize the one who came to save you. And as he uttered those words, he uttered them not with a sense of satisfaction. You're going to get yours now. Oh, no. He drew near the city and wept over it and uttered these words we have just read. They were words that were uttered through tears of deep sorrow for the rejection of his people. The Apostle Paul understood also what it meant to weep over lost souls. And in Philippians 3, 17 beginning, he wrote, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. I've told you about them, he says, often, and I'm telling you again about them now, but I'm telling you even weeping. Oh, how many examples do we have in Scripture of godly people? Godly people, and the godliest of all, Jesus Christ himself, weeping. Weeping. Because men would not keep God's law. What about you tonight? Could we rejoice? And should we rejoice? knowing your attitude and your actions concerning the Word of God. Oh, I know there are many in here over whom we can rejoice because we know that you are committed. But if there's someone here tonight who has not obeyed the gospel of Christ, someone who has not obeyed the simple plan of salvation as we've outlined it in this lesson tonight, has not obeyed that form of doctrine that God through his only begotten Son and out of love for you has delivered to you if you have not obeyed it, will tonight not be the night so that you can leave here rejoicing as the eunuch did when he went on his way rejoicing and so that we can rejoice over you rather than weep because you keep not the law. Oh God, if you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, we plead with you to do that so that we might rejoice over your return. And for those who need no repentance, because you know that your attitude is in harmony with the attitude of the psalmist as we have studied it tonight, may God continue to bless you 
to pant for and long for and love and learn from and live out in your life the law of Almighty God, the testament of Jesus Christ. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing, to encourage?